Our scripture passage this morning comes from Ephesians 4, as we continue the study that Jeff's been doing. If you would turn to Ephesians 4, we'll cover verses 1 through 16. Morning. There are some outlines on the table back in the narthex that have all the scripture references we'll be covering today. If you need one of those. And then tonight, uh, the Bible study uh, at 6 o'clock, we'll go from 6 to 7.30. And uh, I have some questions if you want to look over those before tonight. I'll leave those up here at the end of the service. There, I think everything's settled. Ephesians 4. Let's look together at God's holy and inerrant word. For this reason, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who, of all who is over all and through all and in all. But each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now the expression he ascended, what does it mean except he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? It's the incarnation. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray as we study his word. Father, we ask that you would take these words on the page and make them come alive in our hearts. But we ask for you to do what only you can do and that your spirit might work within us to illumine our hearts and then help what we study this morning to find its way into our lives this week. We ask for all this in Christ's name. Amen. It says, therefore, I encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The book was written in 1896 by Charles Shelton, a minister, called In His Steps. Some of you may have read it. And 
For 50 years after it was written, it was the most popular book in America. The bestseller next to the Bible. I ran across it when I was in college back in the 70s and read it. And that book, in his steps, was where the movement, What Would Jesus Do, came from. The little bracelets. That was the theme of the book, What Would Jesus Do? The pastor finished the sermon. It was on 1 Peter. Jesus left us an example that we should walk in his steps. Special music had just sung, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, I don't want to And suddenly, somebody stepped in the back. There's a homeless man that had been around town all week. He was a typesetter who had lost his job because of technology, and now he had come to this town to try to find another job. Every place he went, he, he, he kept emphasizing, I'm not looking for a handout, I want a job. His wife had died two months earlier. His daughter was staying with relatives in another town, and he was trying to find work to establish himself so he could reunite his family. But in business after business all week, he kept getting kicked out, and they would holler out, you homeless drunk, go away. And so as he made his way up the aisle, people didn't know what to say. He got to the front, and he said, do you mind if I address the congregation? And nobody said anything because they were in shock. And he said the sermon today was walking in the steps of Jesus. I don't understand what this means for Christians because I'm not seeing it. What does it mean to walk in the steps of Jesus? And as he, he talked and for a few more minutes, he started to leave and he, he fell down and he died that week from pneumonia. And the church for the next year struggled with what it means to walk in the steps of Jesus. It was a novel. But God tells us this morning, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you received. Excuse me, brother. Yes. You walk off the mic. There's nothing in the foyer. Okay. The I was wondering if it was uh, on here. Do I need a battery or do I need to stand behind the pulpit? Yeah, no light comes on, so I guess it's a battery. John, can you hear me if I stand here? Okay. I will stand here and not walk. But it's, the sermon's about walking. How can I stand still? Okay. Talk about somebody coming down the aisle, and there he came. <laughs> oh, me. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So the first question we have to ask is, what is our calling? What calling have we received? When I was growing up, if we talked about calling, we equated that with vocation. What's your calling in life? It's to be a lawyer or to be a doctor or to be a father or a husband. But we talked in terms of what we do. And usually your calling was something you prepared for your whole life. So that when you received your calling, you were ready for it. You were prepared. You were equipped. You had studied. You had worked hard. And, and now you had your calling. But the calling Paul talks about here is, is far different. It encompasses not just what we do, but who we are. The very core of our being. 
And instead of something we work our way into, it's something God gives through grace. We have to look at what we were before God called us, and he does that in chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's, that's the status we had before we were called. Well, what are the desires of the flesh and the mind? He, he doesn't go into it here. But if you look over in Romans 1, he goes into it explicitly. He says, first of all, that, that what's evident about God is, is, is in all creation. But mankind chose to ignore God and not worship him as God. Instead, they created idols. Worshiped idols. Sometimes the idol is ourselves as we stand in God's place and make our own decisions. <clears throat> so he says that because men refused to recognize God for who he was, God gave them over to, look in verse 24 of Romans 1. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And he goes on to talk about lust of the flesh, sexual immorality. That God gave mankind over to that because they refused to recognize him as God. But then he goes on to talk about the desires of the mind. Down in verse 28. And he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To those, those things which are not proper. Being filled with unrighteousness, wicked, greed, evil, Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. If your heart is filled with all those things, what do you do? Very next phrase is, they are gossips. What? They're filled with evil, greed, murder, and it shows up because they gossip. Yeah, instead of going to somebody and talking to somebody about their failures, they talk about somebody to other people. Maybe it makes them feel better. Maybe it makes us feel better. And then he goes on to say they're slanderers. They tell half-truths about somebody to run them down and hurt their reputation. Oh, boys, I read that. I thought about social media today. All the posts that are half true that we post or repost that reflect on somebody badly. Slanders. Haters of God. Insolent. Arrogant. Somebody once told me I was the most egotistical person they knew. <laughs> the older I get, the more I believe it. God's got a lot of work to do. Boastful. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, you can't depend on them. Unloving, unmerciful. Then the next sentence is telling, it says, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Gossip, worthy of death. Slander, worthy of death. 
People get upset because Facebook censors them. They don't think about what God thinks about it. Or God thinks about what we write, what we say. Even though they know that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's us before we knew Christ. Back in Ephesians 1, Paul talks about our calling. The amazing thing is before God ever created us, before he even created the world, he knew us intimately. He knew everything that we would do. He knew us at our best and at our worst. The things that we've hidden from others that we hope nobody ever knows. God God knows all about it, and he knew it before he ever formed us in the womb. That's why chapter 1, verse 4 is so amazing. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. The amazing thing is, God didn't choose us to be holy and blameless as if it's something we can do. Yeah, I chose you, now you go be holy and blameless. That's something he does. If you're a sinner, you can't just become blameless all of a sudden. Somebody has to take your blame. To be holy is to be set apart for God's use. Somebody has to set you apart. God chose you so he could do those things for you. Let's keep reading. In love, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Why did he choose you in all of your ignominy? It's the kind intention of his will. He simply wanted to do so. And to the praise of the glory of his grace. It intrigues me that, that through all, all of history, before history began, God in heaven never had a chance to show grace. And the angels must have wondered, well, what is this, this thing, if they even heard the word? And then God created man, and man fell into sin, and Jesus Christ took on flesh and died for us, and suddenly all of heaven saw what grace was. Because God demonstrated it to his glory and the redemption of mankind, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of grace which he lavished upon us. He saw us in the very depths of our sin and he just lavished grace on us. Lavished mercy upon us. Seated us in the heavenly places. Called us his inheritance. Gave us hope. C.S. Lewis one time wrote these words. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, meaning those who are conformed to the image of Christ. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature that, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. When we see Christ, we'll be like him. If we could see each other as we will be, He said the temptation would be to fall down and worship because there would be something of God we would see in the person. 
or else a horror and corruption such as now if you meet, if only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to wonder the two of these destinations, heaven or hell. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it's with awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct, conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Because we will live for eternity. We have a calling to be children of God. Go figure. For all that we were, God saw it. And he looked down from eternity and said, you're mine. And he sent his son to die for you. That's our calling. Some people put it, put it backwards and say, if you do your calling, or if you walk the walk, then you'll be called. And Paul said, no, you were called. Now that you have this calling that is incredible, let your life come up to that level. Let your life be worthy of that calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you received. So how are you doing? I think in order for us to walk that walk, which begins in verse 2 of our text, that calling has to grasp our hearts. Imagine being at the front door one day when you hear a knock and you open the door and there's somebody there with this huge envelope that has $5 million written on it. And they say, we're from Publishers Clearinghouse and you've just won $5 million. And you say, okay, that's good. And you close the door. And after you turn around, it hits home. What? I won $5 million. You throw the door open and you're celebrating and dancing and jumping and And then you hear the words of Christ. From all eternity I chose you. And I've seated you in heavenly places. And I've poured out the wealth of my love upon you. And you are my child. And all this vast creation that you see. Yeah, that's mine. And you're my child. Paul prays in chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. I pray that the Father may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you'll know what is the hope of his calling. Paul is saying it can't just be up here. It's got to grasp who you are. And if it grasps who you are at heart, how can you not live out of the abundance of joy that you are a child of God? Now, how does that Mesh, how does it become a reality for you? Well, you'll be back in chapter 2 again. After he told us our condition, he said this, But God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. All this becomes a reality in us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's crucial. We, we believe who He is. We believe what He's done. And now we trust Him for that salvation in our lives. By grace you've been saved through faith. And He says, that's not of yourself, but it's a gift of God that no one can boast. It's your calling. It's no wonder, He says, that the way this calling begins working its way out is first of all in the heart. He'll go on in, later in Ephesians to talk about uh, walk. Well, let's look at it right quick. 
First chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ walked. Verse 15 of chapter 5. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise and wise. So he'll talk about what it means to walk out in the world and imitate God, be like he is, love people like he does. But he begins by saying it all starts here. Back in chapter 4. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called with all humility and gentleness. With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Humility in the Greek world was a terrible word. It denoted weakness. Nobody wanted to be humble. And then Christ came. And suddenly as you stand before who you were, and who you are now in Christ. There's a sense of humility, deep humility, that envelops a Christian. Arrogance is out the window. Gentleness or meekness. For a Christian, meekness is not a weakness. Meekness is simply being angry at the right things. If somebody gets hurt by evil, you bet we get angry. We should. But when evil happens to us, there's a sense in which we take a step back and realize that Christ was also had stones thrown at him. He was also whipped, beaten. He was also spoken against. And he endured it for our sake. And so in meekness, we approach the world with the love of Christ and offer something that's sorely missing. And he says, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. The word is long-suffering, macrothumeo. It means that you have the ability to take action against somebody that hurts you. But you choose not to. You're long-suffering. God, it says, is long-suffering with sinners. Is he able to do retribution? Of course he is. Is he able to punish sin immediately? Yes, we would all drop dead. But he's long-suffering because of the work he's doing in this world. To his glory and praise. And so we're long-suffering. There have been times I, I get, somebody will do something that will tick me off. And then when I sit there kind of fuming a little bit, I, I realize what I'm like before God. And the grace I've received. And it helps me be a little bit more patient toward people around me and long-suffering and tolerant. Because I know God's at work in their life just as much as in and work in my life. So, so that's the way our calling first happens. It, it happens in our heart. And it changes our disposition toward people around us. The other thing it does is cause us to seek the unity of the church. Verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father for us all, who's over all and through all and in all. The church is meant to be one. Paul was arrested in Rome because he brought Greeks into the temple. But that was his goal, was to unfold the mystery of, of Christ in these latter days, that God had saved both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, by faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 3, microphone. In Acts chapter 3, you see that you have the wealthy and the poor in the same church. 
those who had extra lands when there was a famine and sold them to provide money for those who had nothing. In chapter 8, you see the conversion of an Ethiopian. So you have black and white in the church. In chapter 10, you see the conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And you have Simon the Zealot who hated Rome. And a Roman centurion brought into the same church. I'd imagine if you had Democrats and Republicans, you might see them brought into the same church as well. Because we're united around Jesus Christ. That's our goal. A Christian seeks the unity of the church. How are we equipped and how does this work itself out in the church? Let's look at that briefly. In chapter 9, uh, verse 9, of, he begins saying that Christ gave gifts to men. The picture there is as a Roman king had defeated an army in battle. As he comes home, he leads captives behind him and he gives gifts to the crowd that's waiting and applauding his return. And so he pictures Christ ascending to heaven doing the same thing. That as he tows captives behind him, he gives gifts to the church, gifts of grace. Gifts that happen to have names and faces like each of you do. We read in Romans that each of us have gifts according to the grace given to us. And as we exercise those gifts, the whole church grows. We often think if somebody asks us who the ministers are at the church, we would say, well, it's Jeff and Chris. But biblically, you're the ministers of this church. Look down in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. The church grows when you do your work and use your gifts. So I have to ask you this morning, what is your gift? What has God called you to do in this body of believers? We we often feel like our our task is to come in on Sunday mornings and sit next to somebody and, and passively listen to Jeff do ministry. But what's really happening is we're coming together as a body of Christ and Jeff is equipping us to minister to the person next to us or the person across the room from us. It may be that we're the person who encourages and says, hang in there, you're doing a good job. Maybe our role is to listen and to be the person who actually sits and hears what someone needs to say and then prays with them. But maybe our role is a teacher and we're equipping others with knowledge of the Word of God. Maybe our role is to lead in music and and sing and encourage somebody through the sung Word. What, What is your gift? And how are you using it? What is your ministry? And then how can this church equip you as you use your gift? How can it come along beside you? The word equipped is used in the Greek language in a variety of ways. It's used in mending fishing nets. It's used to talk about resetting joints that are out of joint. It's used in healing. It's used in binding up broken. So how can this church come along beside you and bind you up when you're broken? Mend the holes in your skills and service. Encourage you. 
and then send you out to do what God has called you to do. This body of believers. And as you're doing your ministry that says that the goal is we will all attain to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the statue that belongs to Christ. Are we there yet? Do we reflect Christ? Do people look at us and say, wow, that's the kind of compassion Jesus had? Or that's the attitude Jesus had towards sin? And this is what Jesus did about sin. That that congregation is just like that. He says in verse 14 that as a result of of all this, we're to no longer be children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. And there are so many things out there now. So many various gospels. Paul confronted a lot of them in the New Testament. Trying to put people back under the law, circumcision. You had to become a Jew before you could be a Christian. He confronted time after time people who came behind him trying to undo the gospel he was teaching. He says, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by all this. We're to know the truth. So what are you doing on your part to know the truth? So that as it says in uh, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into all aspects into him. Second Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. Are you studying God's word? Are you dwelling in it? Are you letting it touch and change who you are? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called. Leaders, equip the church to do what they've been called to do. And maybe one day, there'll be somebody standing at the back of the church like John, except he'll come forward. And he'll stand at the front and say, I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And the pastor, Jeff, talked this morning about walking in the steps of Jesus. And then he'll look at this congregation with a smile and say, you guys got it. You do it. And he'll drop to his knees and give thanks to the God who's so mightily at work in this group of people. Let's pray. Father, you call us to a task that we've only barely begun, it seems like at times to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling we received, that glorifies you. Father, continue your work within us. We pray for vision, for strength, for purpose, and that you would open the eyes of our heart to see the hope of our calling, that we might pursue it with vigor. Lord, forgive us when we let down and decide we're satisfied with the status quo and with being who we used to be. We're called to so much more. Oh, Father, lead us into that new area. Fill us with your spirit. Equip us. Strengthen us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.